Hello and welcome to another live episode of Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm an author, a journalist and the only Italian restaurant in Not Glen. Joining me is author, podcaster and sexually active cottage, Sarah Maria Griffin. And today we're talking about Maeve Binchy's Circle of Friends. I feel like we're all a circle of friends today here, lads. A tight circling. Um, Sarah, I've been wanting to get you on this podcast since I started it. And when we suggested it, even before we knew there was a live cast, we said, I asked you what to do. And you immediately said this book. And you'd never read it. No. So why'd you pick it? Because it's a book that's on everybody's shelf. Any house that you've ever gone into ever in your life, somewhere yeah. on a bookshelf among cookbooks or in the jacks or in the little bookshop, bookshelf at the top of the stairs, there is always going to be a well-worn, well-loved copy of Circle of Friends. It doesn't matter what beach you're on, oh, yeah. in what like resort in Ayanapa or in like Albufeira, <laughs> somebody is going to be cradling a large, loved copy of Circle of Friends. It was also a Leave Insert book the year after I did my Leave Insert, right. or the year before. So it was my, loads of my mates were reading it and I never... I never got around to it because I'd been told, I ah, know that's only women's. Well, you don't want that now. That's, oh, yeah. just, that's just a bunch of people talking to each other. That's just a load of girls. And I had been turned away from Maeve Binchy many times as a, as a very nerdy teenager who was like, yes, I read Lord of the Rings. Mm, I play video games. So I thought for many years that I was in some capacity above it. And yeah. I was frankly entirely fucking incorrect. And I am mortified at the amount of years that I've gone through of my life without reading it. I read it in four days. It's Same. 700 pages long. And, uh, it's a 700-page epic that is just women talking to each other and having coffees. <laughs> like, and you'd think it'd be boring, but there's so much so plot. Much, there's so much. so much fucking accident and incident and trauma. But um, just uh, some of you will have read it at Leaving Cert. Some of you have been forced to hate it because you read it for Leaving Cert. Um, but I'm just going to give a, a quick overview of the plot, and then we'll dive right in. So... Benny and Eve are lifelong friends from the sleepy village of Knock Glen, a town about an hour outside of Dublin. Having just finished school, they are both due for Dublin, but Benny's overprotective parents and Eve's lack of family feels like circumstances will keep them as outsiders forever. Their, la- their lives are changed, however, when a car accident kills one of their fellow DCU classmates and leads them to meeting Nan, Nan Mahan, a coolly beautiful girl trying to escape her working class life, and Jack Foley, an upper middle class son of a doctor. As the academic year continues, they are plagued with heartbreak, betrayal, death and disaster, and learning to be masters of their own fate. Um, I don't generally, when I'm doing these summaries, cite the class of the characters, but in this book, and it's set in 1957, it is the most important background character. It's like, you know how people are like, oh, in Sex and the City, New York is a character. class is the character in this and what it is lovely is like it's politically you know we know that the 50s were this time where like catholic students were getting third level education en masse for the first time and it's what started it's kind of what started the troubles really it was the academic foreshadowing of that and we have all these kids some of them are living up in donnybrook some of them are living in sort of like like basically council housing digs 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 are a big part a landlady like and you're living in her side room you know yeah and they're all just trying to make third-level education work, and they're the first generation for whom they're just women finishing school, going off to college, and their parents just don't know how to deal. No. 
Not at all. Yeah. And the class thing is very, very interesting because there's a beautiful relationship with between Knock Glen, where half of the novel takes place, and Dublin. And these are these two entirely different places and two entirely different worlds where different things happen. And the the class system doesn't it, the class system that exists within Knock Glen is the prods in the big house and the Catholics in the village. Yeah. And there is a tremendous tension and spite that happens between those two worlds. And I, I have to say for Binchy, her dialogue is razor sharp. Nobody can deliver a put down in terms of, especially in terms of class. And she always punches up. She never punches down. Yeah. Um, so, and in Dublin, you have like acknowledged like working class backgrounds and then Jack Foley who's son of a doctor from Donnybrook yeah. and so much of it is about transcending class and moving into and trying to take control of your own destiny in a landscape that previously would never have permitted an Irish person let alone an Irish woman to move it's about mobility and the introduction of mobility into Ireland that just it just wasn't there before before people could go to UCD you know what yeah. I mean like and um it's really, really captivating in that way. But I think what the most important thing about that class thing is, is that they're all very active. None of them are just letting their class yeah. happen to them. They're yeah. like prison break all the time. They're they all are. moving. Yeah, it's, it's like a heist. It's like a reverse heist. <laughs> life heist. Class. Yeah, 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 life heist. Um, and there's a thing that, that it is in name checks early on in the book, which I had no idea of, that Trinity was a proddy college. Did you not know that? I didn't know that at oh, all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No Catholics in Trinity. No. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So yeah, yeah. our kind of, our, our main heroine is someone who is so easy to love. Her mm. name is Benny Hogan. And I think what was important to us reading it, and two of us, two strapping girls, do you know what I mean? <laughs> strapping tall, five foot eight girls. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and she's, she's a big woman. Yeah. And her sort of bigness has come back to a lot in the book. And like everyone around her is like these small little glamorous Dublin girls and they know the fashion and they have more than one shop to buy their clothes from. And uh, Nan Mahan, who becomes her very glamorous friend, is one of those people. But it's like that thing of being this big, strong country girl and people are constantly making references to how like big and strong she is and like going into this like little aesthetic-y place, this learned place where everyone's their, their lovely twin sets and feeling like an oaf. Yeah, um, and you've got this beautiful passage. I'd love you to read. I will. just about that. It's, I, this blew my mind. It's one of these books where you want to kind of take a picture of every second paragraph and send it to everybody you know because you're like, it me, oh Jesus, <laughs> oh it um, me. I think if it was written today, like the most important thing I think that to preface on this is that it doesn't read like a book set in the 1950s. No, it could easily be the 90s. It could be any point in Ireland up until we had the internet or phones. Like it's it's quite literally a timeless piece of work, yeah. and that's why it's so powerful and. Well, I'm, the piece I'm going to read now, um, I'll read it and we'll talk about it. Okay. So it kind of introduces you a bit to Benny and her world and uh, what it's like for her at the very beginning. It's probably about three minutes. Uh, I'll, I'll try and do it dramatically to bring you in. <laughs> Benny didn't really remember much about the party before they went into the dining room. She felt dizzy, partly with the shock and partly with the lack of food. Over the past few days, she'd been starving herself to impress a young fella. We've all been there. We've all been there. She looked wildly to see what the others were drinking. Some of them had glasses of club orange, but it could have been gin and orange. The boys had glasses of beer. I'd like one of those, she pointed weakly to a beer glass. Good old Benny, one of the lads, said Bill Dunn, a boy she had always liked before. Now she would have liked to pick up the heavy glass ashtray and beat him over the head with it until she was perfectly sure that he was dead. <laughs> they were all chatting easily and happily. Benny's eyes raked the other girls. Rosemary was, as usual, looking as if she had come out from under the, air, the hairdryer and hours of ministration in the poshest place in Dublin. Her makeup was perfect. She smiled at everyone admiringly. Carmel was small and pretty. She'd been 
been going out with her boyfriend Sean since they were 16 or maybe even 15. They were known as the college's perfect romance. She looked at Carmel with adoration and he listened to every word she said as if, she were pro- as if it were pronouncement. Carmel was no threat. She would have eyes for nobody, not even Jack Foley. Aidan Lynch, the long lanky fellow who had taken Eve to the pictures, was there too. I think... Aiden does deserve a round of applause, to be yeah. fair. Like, Aiden, Aiden is, is, Aiden a, is outstanding. He's a very sexy character. Very sexy. Uh, Benny breathed a prayer of relief that she told nobody about what she had thought was her date. How foolish she would have felt had that story gotten around. But of course, Aiden would, have, Aiden would tell Eve that Benny was there and Eve might very reasonably wonder why nothing had been mentioned. Benny felt cross and hurt and confused. The other girl was Sheila. She was a law student. A pale sort of girl, Benny thought, and looking at her savagely pale and rather dull-featured. But she was small. God, she was small. She had to look up at Jack Foley, not over at him like Benny did. She remembered Patsy talking about her needing a big ox of a man. She willed the tears back into her eyes. None of them had ever been there before. It was all Jack's great plan, they had said. A scheme that would make them well-known, highly respected personages here by the time they qualified. Lots of lawyers and a lot of racing people met here. The thing to do was to establish herself as a regular. The words of the menu swam in front of Benny. She was going to eat real food for the first time in ten days. She knew it would choke her. She was sitting between Aidan Lynch and the wordless Sean when the final seating arrangements were made. Jack Foley was between Rosemary and Sheila across the table from her. He looked boyish and pleased, delighted with his notion of getting the four boys to pay for a smart lunch like this. The others were pleased with him too. I must say, you went out and plucked the best of, bu- the, best of the bunch for us to be seen with, Aidan Lynch said, extravagantly faithless pig, Benny thought to herself, remembering he had sworn such undying devotion to Eve Malone earlier in the week. Only the best is good enough. Jack's smile was warm and included everyone. Benny's hand was reaching for the butter, but she pulled back. To her fury, Bill Dunn saw her. Ah, go on, Benny. Hanged for a sheep is the lamb, he said, pushing the butter dish towards her. You should see the marvellous teas that go on the table in in Benny's house, Jack said, trying to praise her. I was down there not so long ago, and you never saw the style. Scones and savouries and tarts and cakes. And that was just an ordinary day. That's the country for you. They like to feed them up and down there. Not like us poor starved town mice, Satan said. Benny looked around them. The thin blouse with the frills had been no good, nor had the blue skirt. She could feel the waft of blue grass coming from under her arms and down the front of her bra. She wasn't the kind of girl that people would admire and want to protect like they felt about Rosemary Ryan and the little loving Carmel and the pale but interesting Sheila from the law faculty. Benny had been brought along only as a jokey person. Someone that they'd all talk about with, uh, they'd all talk to about big feeds and being hanged for a sheep as well as a lamb. She smiled a brave smile. That's it, Aidan. You come down to knock Len and we'll fatten you all right. You'd be like one of those geese that they, that they stuff so they'll have nice livers. Benny, please. Rosemary flattened, fl- fluttered her lashes and looked as though she was going to come over all faint. But Bill Dunn was now interested. Yeah, we could be seeing Lynch's liver on the menus. Jack was entering into a two. A knock Len specialty, fattened 50 miles from Dublin, he said. I'd have to go into hiding. They don't want me dead, not alive. God, Benny, what have you got planned for me out there? Think of what a delicacy you'd be, said Benny. Her cheeks were glowing, fattened 50 miles from Dublin. Had Jack really said that? Had he meant it as a joke about her? That most important thing was to not seem hurt. It's a high price to pay, Aidan said, uh, looking thoughtful, as though he were considering it as a serious possibility. I think it's all rather awful to joke about raising poor defenceless animals to eat them, Rosemary said, looking fragile. Benny wished she could remember what Rosemary had ordered, but she didn't need to. Jack did. Come on, that's hypocritical, he said. You've ordered veal chops. The calves didn't exactly enjoy getting ready to become that now, did they? He smiled at her across the table. 
the knight who had come to her rescue. Rosemary sulked and pouted a little, but when nobody took any notice, she recovered. Rosemary and Sheila competed all during the meal for Jack's attention. Carmel only cared what Sean thought of this or the items on the menu, and they ate little pieces from each other's plates. Benny entertained Bill Dunn and Aidan Lynch as though she had been a hired cabaret. She worked at it until she could feel the beads of sweat on her forehead. She was rewarded with their attention and their laughter. She could see Jack straining to join at times, but he seemed pinioned by the warring women on either side. The less she tried to seek his attention, the more he tried to engage her in chat. It was obvious that he liked her company, but only as somebody who was a load of fun. With a smile that nearly cracked her face, Benny knew inside that Jack Foley liked to be where there was laughter and good times. He wouldn't in a million years have thought of asking someone like Benny out alone. Simon Westward passed the table. Protestant, big house. See you back in Knocklen sometime, he said to Benny. Who's he? Isn't he rather splendid? Rosemary asked. She seemed to be losing slightly on points to Sheila, who had the advantage of being able to compare notes about lectures with Jack. Rosemary must have decided on the making him jealous routine. He's one of the ones we didn't manage to fatten up properly in Knock Glen, she said. All the others laughed at this, but Jack didn't. Don't knock Knock Glen, he said softly. He had said that before to her. This time he seemed to be saying something else. Oh, maybe Lovely. Then she out. It's so, it's such a wonderful, wonderful reading. And it's one of the things, as we said earlier on, about it being a completely timeless novel. It doesn't mm. matter what year, what decade. If you're, if, if you're, you're always a gal looking at other gals. Always. You know I mean? And who is looking at you? It's that Margaret Atwood male fantasies thing, right? Where you're always aware of male eyes upon you. And even when you're looking at yourself, you're looking at yeah. yourself through that gaze. And that scene there only is short a couple of fucking iPhones and it could be now. Like it could be a gang of 18 year olds in UCD at this moment. Yeah. Do you know? It's only missing the trappings of the world that we live in now. It's only missing the internet. It's exactly captured and bottled the kind of dark and unpleasant and harmful interior monologues that we carry about ourselves and the women around us. And it's also that thing of like, it doesn't take a smart woman to hate herself. Oh, yeah. It doesn't take a, but it takes a, a great one to turn that self-hate into this like production of like, sure, aren't I a great laugh altogether? Doesn't it, don't all the lads love having me around? I'm, I can like bang back the gins like anyone kind of thing. And I think a lot of women, particularly in their uni years, mm. spend a lot of time. And I think it's where we got that Gillian Flynn concept of the, the cool, cool girl, girl. Yeah. of like um, feeling like other women are dangerous territory yeah. and men will kind of accept you if you can sort of adopt their lingo. Or if you just mute and neuter all of your interests and personality to a point on which you can become an easy projection board for their lives. You can yeah. even see in the novel as Benny's relationship with Jack progresses that she's kind of just lets him away with murder and she kind of just often notes, oh, he wouldn't like it if I said that. Oh, no, sure, I won't say that to him. I don't want to be bo- Her father fucking dies. Probably. And she's just like, oh, well, like, I don't want to bother him with all this funeral shit. I don't want to be asking him to stay down and look yeah. after me. He's more things to be doing up in Dublin playing the rugby. And it's like, Jesus, Mary and fucking Joseph, Ben, yeah. your dad just died. Like, you know? She, yeah, she has absolutely no... It's, and I think that, that's, again, I'm gonna, I, can't, I hate the word timeless because it's very lazy. Mm. But it's like that thing of, like, she has no... Because she's... Everyone keeps reminding her throughout the novel that she's punching up. Yes. That she should be so delighted with herself that a man like Jack Foley would be even interested in taking her out and being so public about it, like, yeah. and everything. That she has absolutely no right to ask for anything yeah. so literally as you say her father dies in the middle of the novel oh it's v- desperately it's sad as well desperately he's, sad he's a lovely character there is an ensemble in this novel that is 
Sure, there's more people Hundreds in this novel than there are sitting here, and there's plenty of you. Do you know? It's a full <laughs> town in Knock Glen. It's half the cast of UCD Dublin 1950 Splash, you know? Yeah. It's a very busy book with humans. So you do get to know her dad a good bit. Yeah. And when he fucking surprised, spoiler alert, drops dead halfway through it, it kind of takes the breath out of you. It totally, and as well, because Maeve Binchy is such a cozy writer, mm. and you spend so long with these characters, just eating lunches, having coffees, having chats, and then she'll just like midway just someone dies or someone uh, gets pregnant, someone has a miscarriage kind of thing. And she'll just like, just plop these things in, like kind of like literally like stones into the water and you just watch the ripples go out. And it's so exquisitely done. It's such an incredible thing. It's world building. She does an excellent, because I write science fiction generally, I hear, I have a lot of things banged into me over and over again about how you build a world. You need to build currency, you need to build government, you need to build food, you need to build all of these factors in that makes a reader comfortable entering this alternate universe of your novel. And Binchy does this so softly and tenderly with the way that the book works. And for the first hundred pages, please keep in mind it is seven hundred pages. You don't feel it's a single seven hundred pages you don't and feel, it flies. It just whips by you. Um, that about one hundred and fifty pages in, when they finally fucking get to UCD, you think you think you know that Eve and Benny are going to go up to UCD and they're all going to figure things out. They're standing at a corner, Stephen's Green, and a character that we've met a couple of times, a lad called Frank, and we met him and his mom, and we're like, ah, oh, yeah, somebody's going to ride him now in a few pages gets hit by a fucking car and dies in front of them. And the person who is driving that car is Jack Foley's dad, a doctor. And you're left sitting there 100 pages in going, are you for real? Yeah. Because we're introduced to all of these characters, vignette by vignette and scene by scene. There's so many of them. And I'm like, okay, well, like we all imagine they're all going to end up in the same classroom and get to know each other. It's the least lazy and the most active storytelling I've ever seen. It's a tremendous... All of the main characters meet at the sight of a death outside Stephen's Green, uh, standing over the body of a dead young fella who you, the reader, have met. And you yeah. believe but he they will haven't join met, him. Yeah. They haven't met him. They've only seen him in the instances by which he was lashed out of it by a fucking car. God love him. Yeah. So it's... It's unbelievable how it oscillates between these tender, everyday instances of people having coffee and putting on clothes and wondering who loves who, and these huge, life-altering, violent events. And the tone in which she tells us about them, these horrors, these deaths, these car accidents, these miscarriages, is exactly the same as the one in which she will describe the tea that's laid out upon the table. Like, that's world-building. It's voice. It really is. And that, that's something that um, Binchy always said when she was live. And God rest her soul, I wish I'd gotten oh into her God, writing I while wish... she was around for me to win, like, to, you know... I wish I could meet her. Yeah, like, exactly. after this, I'm just like, I can't... And I, I know lots of folks from, from the job and all who are like, I, you would have loved her. She was, she was amazing. And I feel, like, bereft... Yeah. that I'll never get to see her at like a writing event or in a pub or something and go thanks man yeah. like you just turned my brain inside out yeah. you know like completely pouring out but for me she, she did say she, she used to joke a lot that um, she had this, the misfortune of having a supremely happy Irish childhood and <laughs> which is a really if you have literary three of them who did it <laughs> yeah but she said she learned how to write by, by writing how she talked and that's how this feels. It feels like a really charming woman being like, sit down there now and I'll tell you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that's, how, that's why it feels so naturalistic to read. Mm. Even the more shocking parts and the more abrupt plot twists, none of them feel out of voice. They yeah. all feel precisely as how life should be and often how life is when you're fucking 18. And like, I guess now when you're in your 30s, like yeah. life throws whopper things at you and you're like, oh, well, we're just keeping going, you know? Yeah. And she handles that beautifully. 
the thing, the I think to me, the message of the whole book is that nobody ever knows how their life is going to turn out. Mm. So in the hundred pages leading up to them going to DCU or UCD, um, is the uh, Benny has to be home on the ten past six bus every single night because her parents, while not bad people or like literally strict, they don't raise their voice to her, they don't raise a hand to her, they adore her, but they're so protective. The idea of her spending an evening on chaperoned in Dublin is crazy to them because they're all of that generation. And she's she's literally going into college and she's like, my whole life is going to be getting the 10 past 6 bus home. I'm never going to meet anyone. All these Dublin people are going to think I'm just some country bumpkin. And I'm just and this is what it's going to be. And I'll probably have to marry Sean Walsh or whatever. We haven't talked about Sean Walsh we'll yet. Get, we'll get to him. We'll yeah. get to Sean Walsh. But then, but then day one, crash. Like, guy dies in front of her. They, they all go to the emergency room. And she, she, they're sitting there and she meets Nan Mahan. And she meets Jack Foley. And then the entire novel just flowers out of this death. Of like they and it's that thing. It's like you experience something drastic with people, and it binds you together, whether you know? you like yeah. it or not. And they don't talk about it often. No, because Eve. So Nan, uh, uh, Eve and Benny come up from Knocklan, and Eve is Eve's storyline is that she is an orphan, and with a terribly complicated, but not all that uncommon. Yeah. Uh, backstory who was reared by the nuns who are all lovely by the way uh, <laughs> suspiciously lovely nuns <laughs> and, um, she uh, doesn't she initially is not going to UCD she's going to work beyond up in a convent uh, for a bed and board and do a secretarial course however uh, she uh, gets to know the mother of uh, the uh, deceased boy and becomes kind of pals with her yeah and becomes nearly familial to her over the 700-odd pages, which is only about six months, give or take, really, yeah, in, their, yeah. in their lives. It's like an academic year. It's an academic year. And um, that uh, grief and that horror opens this window for Eve to become part of the UCD cohort. Yeah. Like, it truly is all off the back of this disaster that all of these people come together, but they don't talk about it. They don't sit there and unpack it and, and meditate on the tragedy that they've seen. Yeah. They just go on it's never acknowledged once in any sort of ham-fisted like look at this plot i just did moment mm. where that that it was this tr- like the storytelling is so skillful that i know that that, that i know as a person who makes books that yeah. that structurally had to happen in order to bring everybody together but as a reader i forgot that i i, I managed to miraculously forget that that was an amazing act of craft yeah she never reminds us. She never shows us what she's doing. Yeah. She just fucking does it. And also, there's, there's so many different storylines happening that you don't know mm. what's a clue. Mm. You don't know, oh, that's going to come up later and your man's going to see her doing this because there's so many just vignettes of just popping in on people's lives. Mm. But I want to go back to what you said a minute ago about being a storyteller, being an author, as we both are, and um, craft and do that. Do you think... In 2019, in like our year of our Lord, 2019, our liberal hellscape that is 2019, <laughs> would you, Sarah Marie Griffin, author of two novels, have the confidence to write a 700-page book about a year in some girls' lives? I would not under yeah. any circumstances. No. Could you fucking imagine going up to a publisher and going, "I've got 700 pages for you, lads," <laughs> yeah. and it's just about these two young ones going to UCD? <laughs> Bear with me; it's good. Yeah, like. 
No, it just, Even, it's impossible. It just wouldn't happen. They would tell you to go home and cut it in half and reconsider it. You know what yeah. I mean? And maybe like consider putting in some sort of an apocalypse. Like <laughs> that study of emotions. And I, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but I do believe it's also a study of the body, which is something that isn't talked about because nobody talks about, well, that's why we're here. Nobody talks about maybe in, in an academic regard. It's a study of the body and a study of the female body within space with other female bodies. It's fucking amazing. But like, there's no way. There's no way you could approach it today. Like no. it's a it's it's a it's a masterpiece and a relic and an impossible. The way publishing has changed, the way the world has changed, nobody would try and sell it now, which yeah. is gross to me. You know, yeah. Like it's it's hideous to me. You know. But the, but the, the closest thing that we have to in 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 modern day books is Elena Ferranti and the Neapolitan yes. novels, which. And to her, she pitched it as one book. And those are three, I mean, three, maybe four books about just these two gals who are friends their whole lives. And they're four different books and they have these very strange covers and they're, they're always marketed with a sense of, this is Elena Ferrante, she's the greatest author in Italy and no one knows who she is. You know, you're, and you're supposed to get, they, they have all these tactics to bring you in, being like the mysterious Ferrante, it's really important you read this, really important. But these were like, these were marketed and sold to women in their sick beds really like do you know yeah. what I mean just like nans like I the first time I ever saw a Maeve Vinci book was in my grandmother's house mm. and I was always like oh yeah something my gran reads or whatever it turns out my gran had taste up to her nuts yeah you know? this is it <laughs> like nobody nobody tells you there's this tremendous disregard and I say this as somebody fucking polluted by an English degree and every so often I'm furious at it and the amount of young flits I was trying to ride by reading the fucking beat poets for years waste my fucking life like and nobody thought to turn around to me and go do you know what you could really fucking benefit from some Maeve Vinci yeah there was such snobbery and bullshit around her that, like, it destroyed it for me. And it it's was, the covers. And it's the, the covers. Fucking, to be fair, it's criminal. The cover, like, literally. What covers, the fuck is that now? Two chairs. <laughs> if, you, just, if you two stuck chairs. a skinny bird on that who looks a bit fucking wistful, yeah. like, more people might be, a lot, like, inclined to pick it up. That's criminal in itself. But to be yeah. fair, like, that's a chair in a fireplace. Yeah. So much happens in this, you know? <laughs> like, it's, um, it's, it's, it's incredible how much the way... The, 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 the women's fiction is, is sold and not sold. To whom it is sold and the manner in yeah. which it is, ta- it is talked about is something that because I, like, I'm literally, I've entered the universe of May Binchy this fucking week that I am immediately angry about. Yeah. I, am, I feel like people have been lying to me for years about yeah. what I should be reading and what is like actually going to make me happy and going to give me insight about the world and going to teach me things about other people. Do you know what I mean? And like for, for me as well, I avoided... Irish writers, like capital I, capital W, Irish writers for years. I mean, I did like the. Like, I'm from Cork, so Frank O'Connor was pushed on me a lot, and I I enjoyed it. And you know, Frank McCourt, obviously, because you know we kind of grew up in that era where the Irish misery memoir was big. such such a big thing for Ireland and it really put us on the map again in the 21st century, 20th century. Um, but I always like picked up these Irish books, and I was like, I okay, I'm a, a middle class girl from the suburbs. Uh, and I don't see myself in this at all. And I want to be... And, like, I just saw, like, starving kids and, you know, the slums of Limerick and, like, Frank O'Connor making a joke about his first Holy Communion. And I never saw myself in any of it. And I knew when I was really young I wanted to be a writer. And I was like, 
well, I guess I'll never be an Irish writer. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? See, I see. I oddly had the inverse of it because I'm because I read a lot of science fiction and a lot of fantasy growing up. I always thought that books set in reality weren't enough for me, and that's bollocks and it's misogyny, frankly. That I always thought that accurate portrayals of life as it was wouldn't be enough for me. That I needed to read about a bunch of prick elves going around looking for a piece of jewelry. Do you know what I mean? Think prick elves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, only one of them's an elf. Eh? But like, I really <laughs> thought that I was going to find some realistic truth about my fucking teenage years in Kilbarrick, like running through fucking. Like, I actually cannot even... Rivendell, thank you. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I, I was looking too far afield. Yeah. And I thought that I would be able to heal something or find my place in the universe that way. Big false. Big false. It was yeah. fine. And I often pretended to like it more than I did, which is, yeah. I guess, the story of most women's lives. Am I right? <laughs> um, so uh, it's a really... Um, I, I do feel like this was kept me. What I did... When I was growing up, my, I, my grandmother brought me up because while my parents worked, so I lived in my nanny's house. And uh, up at the top of the attic stairs was this bookshelf, not readers, but there was a copy of the Barrytown trilogy in that mm. house, which I read out loud to myself on that staircase mm. because mm. I couldn't parse it. And yeah. that did give me, even though that there were definitely no fucking swords and magical rings and hobbits and other shite in that at all. In fact, it was set literally across the road from where that house was. Mm-hmm. And I found myself even in this big backdrop of wanting to be a person who told stories about space and the future and like magic and shit, um, I did find very starkly, and I'll never forget it, more home and more of a, oh my God, that's, that's yeah. us. That's us right there. And I never went back to them in my teenage years. It felt more private. It felt like, well, I read The Van and The Snapper at the top of my nanny stairs and my mom told me I probably shouldn't, but I did it anyway. And that felt to me like uh, the first time that realism in any capacity could hold meaning for me. But that's Roddy Doyle, you know? Mm -hmm. And those pieces are ensemble work, you know? They're not a study of the, like, interior lives of women or whatever. They're a a story about family and and class and pain. And uh, I... I, I don't know why I never went back to looking at reality. You know, I left it. Yeah. And now I'm fucking sold. Like, I'm going to read everything this woman <laughs> yeah. ever wrote. Like, we're, in, you know? we're in Bidgey's Club now. We're in Bidgey's Club big time. Like, Something that spoke to me a lot. And um, so I, you, you emigrated when you were quite young and you came back. You went to San Francisco. I've been living in London for the last, give or take, nine or ten years. Um, and it was always my impression growing up. And I think a lot of Irish young people are... are imbued with this that in order to become something or anything you have to leave and only when you come back can you enjoy the spoils of your victory or whatever and so all of the characters in this book or most of the characters in this book they go away they go they're from the country and they go to dublin and they and they like that's what you're supposed to do if you're an interesting charismatic person you're supposed to go to the nearest big city and make something of yourself and what always gets missed over in these stories is the the brilliance and the courage and the people who push who stay. Yeah. So there are these two fantastic characters uh, oh called uh, Cloda and Fonzie. And they, and they don't go to the city. They stay in Knocklin. Cloda moves to Knocklin. Cloda, she moves to Knocklin. Yeah. This tiny, tiny town. And she, she starts selling like cool clothes, like mini skirts start coming in. And she starts pushing to change the town. And I always feel this as a Cork person. Like the people I know who stayed in Cork um, I come back and see them now and they're the ones putting on the gigs. They're the ones making sure cool people come to Cork to play. They're the ones who are like pushing for cooler and better cities. And, uh, and I think they get overlooked in Irish literature a lot because Irish literature is about people who go away and come back. But I want, yeah, I want you to, to read us a little bit about Claude and Fonzie. I'm obsessed with Claude and Fonzie. So Claude's auntie, Mrs. Pine, runs the clothes shop and Claude knocks in and is like, nah, we're not doing any of this. 
hems up, let's go. It's also about to be the 60s, which yeah. is very exciting for, well, it's pr- pretty terrifying for everyone in Knockland, but it's pretty great for Clodagh. And uh, Fonzie Alfonso is from the Italians who've just opened the chipper up the road. And this is uh, one thing that Binchy does that I really like is she scatters the book with letters and correspondences between the different characters. You know, if she's, if there's a lull in a scene, you'll get like a private little glimpse into some notes. So this is a letter that uh, Fonzie, uh, or that Clodagh sends back to Fonzie. Dear Fonzie, I'm going to have to ask you very firmly to cease writing these notes to me. My aunt thinks that there is only one Miss Pine in the world and that she is it. She has read aloud to me your letters about being groovy and inviting me to where the action is. She has begun to ask me what turning someone on is about and why do people say it's been real. I have a healthy respect for my aunt. I have come over here to help her modernize her shop and improve her business. I do not intend to spend every morning listening to her reading See You Later Alligator at me. I am perfectly happy to meet you and talk to you, but correspondences must now cease cordially, Clouda. <laughs> like, I just love them. They, they knock around the very convent area. The, the Knocklen is in this dichotomy between the big house with the Protestants and the convent with the nuns. And Fonzie and Clouda walk around in outrageous clothes and get banned from the local hotel and generally bring more people to the town because there's some reason to be in Knock Glen because of the good that they do for the infrastructure with the shop and the cafe, you know? If you think about 1958, like, installing a jukebox in the cafe is outrageous. And it never feels cheesy. Never feels cheesy. We've seen that moment so much in films and TV where they're like, oh, they installed a jukebox and now Elvis exists and they're all doing the dancing. Mm. And it all feels very embarrassing. Um, But what is lovely about this, it's like, nah, it doesn't doesn't take like artists or it's like the people who change the cultural conversation, it isn't turning on the radio and Elvis is on. It's the people who are like, who stay in the small towns, who push the envelope all the time. All the time. And even though people resent them and are fucking pricks to them about it. Yeah, they literally go, they go for a drink in like the one place you can get a drink in Knock Glen, which is Healy's Hotel. And there's this wagon who runs it, Dorothy Healy. Uh, And uh, she she throws them out because they're, they're wearing what they're wearing. And like in any other book, that would be like, oh God, it's so hard to be a rebel in Ireland. Oh my God. But like in this, it's like, ah, they like run down the street laughing. They're like, oh my God. And then they tell everybody to cause a load of fucking drama about it. Like there is such, because of Binchy moving from person to person in this giant cast, nobody goes spare in this story. And these moments where the camera turns away from Benny and Eve and looks into Knocklan, like it's a story about, like more than more than them and those I was so grateful for those vignettes into Clauda's life and mm. like even even Sister Frances's life and all of these little ins and outs that were happening within Knocklen because it's about a time as well it's about yeah. 1958 and Ireland is moving so you can't have a conversation about a bunch of college students who leg it up to UCD to go and become upwardly fucking mobile without looking back at Knocklen and going well they were yeah. kind of moving too don't yeah. knock Glen, you know Speaking of upward mobility, I'd love if we talked a bit about Nan Mahan. Oh, we haven't talked about her yet. Do you want to introduce her, will I? Oh, Nan, with her beautiful head of golden curls and her tiny yeah. perfect face. Yeah, she's like she's described continuously as being like a, a Grace Kelly lookalike. Yeah. And she's this girl, and she's from like, a little bit above a council estate, I think. It's like her parents have just sort of bought a place. They say Maple thing. Gardens in it. So she's from Maple Gardens, which is noted as being in the north side of Dublin. And I fucking wish she was more specific. I yeah, was I'd like, where that. is that? Where is that? Because she has a high notions of herself moving into upward society yeah and, and she, she studies like society like Debrett's peerage to see like what's the best way to like uh, say hello to an earl and mm. like she's in like the, she's in the north side of Dublin she's never going to meet an earl but like the, the sort of conflict of the book happens because Eve 
who is basically a relative of the the Prods. Yeah. The Prods who like threw her out in her ear when she was a baby and like completely abandoned her. Her mother was a fancy Prod who got fell in love and married the gardener and then the prods were like nah sorry about you yeah. and your baby Pushed and she died in childbirth and the dad uh, killed himself so go hard Maeve Vinci like it's not fucking this is just like, one storyline it's just like. one storyline <laughs> and then Eve is given up, up above to the nuns even though she's functionally by birth a, a protestant yeah. um, so the big house and wants nothing to do with the baby yeah. And Eve is like, actually, I hate his fuck is. So yeah. there's a huge... Uh, Eve is the most spiteful, angry character I've ever met, and I love her. Love her. So she meets Nan, obviously, when the car accident happens. And Nan is like, investigates Knock Glen and realizes that there are wealthy Protestants in the neighborhood and yeah. decides, I shall ride and marry you, sir. Yeah. And so she's, she's, playing such a, she's playing such a tricky game of blackjack. Mm. And it's, it is the story of Irish womanhood, of Irish womanhood that has no condoms, that has no. No, nothing. That, that you Time in your window, like, you know well, what I mean? Yeah, well, you can't even, like, go to a hotel without saying that you're married and borrowing a wedding ring and that kind of stuff. And she's, she's this kind of, like, always calculating out this endless equation of being like, I can't keep this much older Protestant uh, happy unless I sleep with him. If I sleep with him, I'll have nothing bartering left. And so she's playing that high, high, high game of blackjack and she hits a 24 when she gets pregnant. And, oh. uh, and, he, and she goes to his house. And she rocks up to the big house. He's like, all right, pregnant now. Here's the doctor's report. Get married or what? And Neve, uh, not Neve, Nan's like demeanor is always described as being just like, she never says anything about herself. She always asks questions about you. She's manipulative as fuck. Like she's yeah. cool as a fucking cucumber. And Simon Westward, played by Colin Firth in the film, which we will get to, Bad oh. Times, Bad Colin Times. Colin Firth with the biggest times. porn mustache you've oh ever seen God, in your bad, life. Bad news. Yeah. If you've seen the film, ignore it. Just don't ignore, ignore the film. Fucking shit. Um, <laughs> like so bad. I'm still furious after watching it last night. But he just goes, cool, here's a check for your abortion. Off you go. Yeah. And she's like, no, but I'm going to marry you and become a lady. And he's like, oh, absolutely aren't. Sorry about you. Goodbye. Yeah. So instead of going taken to her bed and freaking out, she uh, takes it upon herself to uh, land into the sack with the nearest available handsome wealthy gentleman. Yeah. The it's aforementioned Jack Foley. Jack Foley, who is Benny's boyfriend. boyfriend. And that's the thing. It's like, you, it's stealing, stealing your best friend's man. It's the oldest trick in the book, isn't it? And beyond stealing him, she not only steals him, she like does the bone dance with him a few times and then produces the same doctor's certificate with the date scribbled out and goes, mm, it's your baby. It's Sorry, your baby. we're going to get married. That's yeah. it. That's the crack. Like she is high because her dad's a doctor from Donnybrook. That, from, that for her isn't quite like high society, but it's better. Yeah. It's something, yeah. you know? And uh, yeah, the game of manipulation that she's playing throughout, because I liked her initially. Mm. I enjoyed her calculating this. I enjoyed how much of a massive bitch she was. I was like, yes, Nan Man, do whatever you want. Yeah. But by about 500 pages in, I was like, Nan Man's cancelled. Like, yeah. Nan Man's cancelled. Jack Foley's cancelled. These people are terrible to each you, other. You just keep cancelling and re and cancelling Oh, my God. Characters as it goes on. Yeah. They're also... Uh, well, she, she is complicated because I understand her... Like, you, you, you unflinchingly understand her motivation. Yeah. But she is... Like, she doesn't care. Like, there is not a drop of empathy out of her. No. And the others are all empathy and all reading the room and figuring out how everyone else feels. And Benny, for example, who we spend the most time with, is always measuring other people's responses to her and always uh, aware of her surroundings and how everyone else looks and feels. Whereas Nan's just like, yes, but this is about me now. Yeah. And, oh, she's a monster. And there's this weird thing where... so. Jack cheats on Benny with mm. her best friend Nan, as we just said. In and Eve's then, house. In Eve's house, which is the worst. Um, and then what happens is 
there's that kind of week where everyone's up in arms about it and the gossip is everywhere and the gossip is everywhere and then it kind of blows over and the men re-accept Jack even very though, quickly be very quickly and and Nan is still on the outs and it's that interesting thing where Nan like disappears from the book like she goes to England becomes a dressmaker she miscarries her baby um, and Jack kind of stays in the gang and it's that thing that we've seen so many times where like men are absolved and women have to just go live in the forest yeah off <laughs> you, you know go I mean? you live in the forest now yeah. fuck you like she is not forgiven and like I don't forgive her as well like that's yeah. so, so skillful is the character portrayal of Nan that like I a little bit I'm like well bye but you know See a bit of a, I, I, I don't know do you have a bit of a problem though that like and I think it feels like that the book feels this way about men where mm. it's like well men are going to cheat on women if they can't have sex well this is it and like, women are conniving because it's the 1950s and nobody has any condoms because they're extremely illegal um, they like Benny is kind of holding off with Jack you know she's like she's like absolutely aching for it the whole time but she's like no 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 it's mortal sin whatever um, but Jack goes away on a lads weekend playing the rugby to Wales and rides a Welsh bird. He rides a Welsh bird. It just happens in the first 300 pages. And Benny's like, oh, well, I suppose that was just one night, so it wasn't hot. Okay, moving on. Like, it's just established into male character in this world yeah. that they're just going to bone around. And the girls are like, oh, well, she's only an elf fucker, isn't he? On we go. And that lack of, that's, that's where it nearly dates itself in some regards. Yeah. That Now, Eve, I would say, is sprightly and <laughs> would stab you, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> so we and all she know. does. She yeah. does, yeah. For, for she would stab somebody out of vengeance for the for uh, for ill deeds, but there is an irregular amount of forgiveness. But I think a part of how enveloping Vinci's voice is that you feel like you're there and you feel like you're with them. And I found reading it that I could almost kind of see where they were all coming from. Asher, ah, sure, it's only Jack Foley. As if I fucking know him. Is he yeah, real? Yeah. You know, Asher like, oh, sure Jack didn't mean any ah, harm. Asher, sure, he's only ahead, and if he could do worse, you know, yeah. uh, Benny was playing out of a league anyway. Like you can find yourself among them in the halls of UCD in a way that I feel I don't actually think that I have ever felt. Yeah, like ever. I feel like so many people read Harry Potter and like, I'm a fucking Slytherin, I'm from Ravenclaw. But I'm just like, yeah, I'm from Knock Glen, fuck you. You know yeah. what I mean? Are you from Dublin or from Knock Glen? And I feel like those two, like I felt more at home. And I think that makes, I think my critical analysis of the work is slightly clouded by how much of a good time I had. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I can't it's hate Jack Foley. No. I can cancel him. <laughs> but like, I can't, I can't hate, hate him. him. <laughs> and there's this interesting thing where... Uh, Benny and Nan, they, they have this thing and, and, and Benny's like, you stole my boyfriend. Like, and, and Nan kind of says to her very coolly, she says, you would have been looking over your shoulder your entire life with him. And it's true. And it's like that sense of like, she, she was never going to get over that sense of like, I'm just, a, I'm a big white girl from the country who everyone thinks is a bit of a laugh. Yeah. And he's the star rugby player and he looks like a film star. And I was, it was never going to work kind of thing. No, and I think there's so much of the bluntness that both the interior monologue that the characters have yeah. and the fucking things they say to each other. There's this, there's this oh. thing where um, Rosemary, who's the next most pretty girl in college after Nan. You, met, you she, briefly met Rosemary. Rosemary was the one who took over all fucking week at the idea of fattening Aiden's liver up in Knock Glen. Yeah, like, yeah. She's very uh, soft. But she says something like, uh, she's looking at Benny and Jack and she can't understand what's going on. And she was like, thinking in an internal monologue, she's like, I suppose it's like Catholics and Protestants marrying each other or black people and white people marrying each yeah. other. You hear of it working sometimes, but it mostly doesn't. That is, that is how hardcore it goes. Like, yeah. <laughs> it is so cruel and blinkered and it's just these characters that's how they are yeah like it's uh it's relentless like and it's all it's like i mean you sit and you watch love island or something and like 
and people are always sidling up to other people going like I think you and him would be good together and I think you and him would be good together and it's just people pairing off people based on their like well they both have dark hair and, and whatever or they're both like Chinese or whatever it's like people just pairing each Rudimentary, other off, but like, like guess who with one another it's so dispassionate it's like oh who makes sense together based on visuals and part of the book is part of Binchy's like she addresses that they are playing guess who for the beginning and then all of the unlikely pairings take off. Yeah. You know, like I think she kind of subverts that idea of sitting around a table and looking at social class and going, well, you will want to marry a doctor, won't you? And you are going to go up beyond into the big house and marry a fancy yeah. man. But then it all kind of turns itself on its head. Like yeah. it takes those conventions, eyeballs them and goes, actually, no. Yeah. There's so much surprise and delight. Like that's something I genuinely, as a very deeply jaded, exhausted person, feel like, I don't, I don't think I've been delighted by a piece of work in about uh, yeah. six fucking years. Delightful. Like it is delightful. And it's really beautiful. Like I was on an airplane. Everyone cries more on airplanes. It's a, it's a statistic. You can find it on the internet. It's real. Um, <laughs> so I have cried at Pitch really Perfect. Is, I have yeah. cried at Pitch Perfect too on, on an airplane. So I have, <laughs> I have, you know, no real excuse myself, but I was flying for work this week uh, as part of my voyage through this. And um, there's an instance in it where Jack takes Benny out for the first time to his Italian restaurant. And you kind of, you don't, like, Benny's internal monologue is so self-deprecating and so full of, like, self-awareness and self-loathing that when he takes her hand and kisses it, like, I welled up. Yeah. I was just like, when was the last time a book made you fucking cry? Over Let someone kissing someone on the hand. Two fucking so corny. 18, two 18 year olds in an empty Italian restaurant in 1958. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, I was there. <laughs> Like, I was there with them. Like, yeah. I haven't felt that level of escapism and fuck. I didn't even think I was capable of feeling it anymore, to be totally honest. You know? Like, really. Yeah. There, there's a thing, the kind of secondary message of the book, I think, is like, everyone at some stage in their lives has to break up with their parents. Oh, that is so real. It's, it, and yeah. it's like, some people do it when they're 14, when they have a fag around the back of their house, and their mom catches them, and they say, you know what, I'm not sorry. And sometimes it happens when people are 35 years old and yeah. they disappoint their parents for the first time. Some people are so hooked into that thing. And the thing with Benny is that her parents are these very old Ireland thick jumpers, like tea on the table every night at the same time. And she's time, sort of a surprise baby. They're older parents, you know? Yeah. And so for older parents in the 1950s, like their world is very, very, very different. Like yeah. it's stated quite frequently how much older the parents are. Yeah. And uh, she, her heartbreak and her mortification, there's a moment in it where Jack Foley's family throw a big party up beyond in the gaff in Donnybrook. Hmm. And uh, she, on the threat and idea that her fucking parents might show up at the party in Donnybrook. Yeah, the parents are invited as a courtesy and she is terrified they might go. She hides and downstairs. She, and she goes straight from college to the party and she changes and they don't know what she's going to wear or anything. And she has this, like, her tits are way out. She looks like the prow of a ship and mm. she's had stuff up to here her whole life. And it's your classic changing outside when you're outside of the village or whatever. And she has an inkling her parents might actually go because she calls home and they're not home. So she thinks, oh, maybe they'll dr- they're driving up. And she spends the entire party just sweating. quaking and sweating. sweating. I was sweating for her, like, I was sick. <laughs> uh, how have we not talked about Sean yet? Oh, yeah, give me Sean. Uh, so Sean I, is played by Alan Cumming in the film. Right, I love Alan Cumming. Like, I think he's fat. I just, I'm obsessed with him. I've always harbored a deep oh, yeah. crush on him. I love him. I saw him in Cabaret in New York and I nearly lost my life. Like, he's gorgeous. He plays 
uh, is what's his last name? Sean Walsh. Sean Walsh, who is the he works with also, Benny's. Quick, outfit. quick aside: the confidence to have two characters called Sean in your book only is in seven. Amazing. <laughs> I would never do like I have in my new book. I've got a character called Mary and a character called Maria, and I'm oh. like, oh, they'll make me change that. It's too similar. Too close. Too close. And they have this lovely thing. They're like, oh, well, that's Sean Walsh, and that's Caramel Sean. Caramel Sean is very different. <laughs> There's no harm off a of Caramel Shawl, but Sean Walsh. Creepy, yeah. Like creepy Sean Walsh. Sean Walsh works in uh, Benny's father's shop, and he has design. He's like these weird, almost Victorian designs on marrying the the daughter of the house, so he can consolidate the business. And like he just sees her as like a, a head of cattle, really. Basically, and he speaks to her no more like it. Like yeah. he ta- like so he comes into the novel in the very beginning when Benny is a child. Yeah, and he's like, and 20. He's like no, he's like sixteen, man. All right, yeah, he he's feels still old. also she is a child yeah. when he is sixteen. But he uh, is described almost immediately as being somebody who there's just no natural energy about. And I think Binchy doesn't really have villains necessarily in this work. Everybody is nuanced, but John Walsh is fucking irredeemable. Yeah. And I think part of what makes how her portrayal, and I think this speaks to her as a writer and how like from. From the week that I've had with her. <laughs> <laughs> the intimate week along with My Maeve. My intimate week with Maeve. Um, what makes him so despicable is his insincerity. Yes. Like, that is what makes him so... Well, there's plenty of other wrong things that make him despicable. But he is initially noted, even when Benny's a child, as completely, completely insincere. And uh, he knocks around, works in the doll shop for ages, and fully praise upon her for yeah. her entire adult and, life and praise on her father like, oh Jesus yep bees we're in a forest um, <laughs> yeah he praised on her father by stealing small amounts of money from her for years and he praised on Benny by stealing small bits of her confidence from her for years he will just look and go alright Benny looking enormous there what's the crack how's it going anybody touched you in a while didn't fucking think so like it's basically that level of searing ongoing put down like he's a monster you know and he works for the dad and uh, sticks around the shop and towards the decline of, uh, of, of Benny's father he has just about become partner so he's wants to marry into the family wants to marry Benny take over the shop like he's greedy he takes and he takes and he takes and he does meet I don't know, does he meet justice necessarily? Mm. Um, but he gets at least a little bit of what he wants towards the end, which is power. And I think that's not something that's ever overtly discussed in this novel, but this is a book about power. It's about yeah. social power, romantic power. Um, like it's, 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 it's an incredible study of what people will do and sacrifice in order to gain more of it. And Sean Walsh is the most naked about his yeah. pursuit of power. And, the, and in the film, he's just like... Again, I did not think that there was any universe in which Alan Cumming would not be a sex man. But <laughs> lo and behold, Alan Cumming as yeah. John Walsh is disgusting. It's the hair. It's, oh, it's the Severus no, it's Snape hair. Him. It's everything about him. Like, it's... it's so, he's, oh. so yesterday, um, I went over to your house, uh, drank two bottles of Prosecco, and we watched Circle of Friends, and we just screamed at it for an hour. It was, it was absolutely... Oh, it was awful. We've just, we've just like both read this in tandem, texting each other constantly for a week, basically what we just talked about here. And then we turn on the, the film and... The cheering film, as the, as cheering as the credit comes on, tin whistle in the background, yeah! <laughs> no knock, knock, Glenn! Yeah! Like, totally yeah, ready. Mini Driver doing some brilliant work, Alan Cumming doing some brilliant work. And the film, and I'm sure a lot of you must have seen it because it's one of those, oh, one of the four films that's set in Ireland. Like, also a leave insert film. It's a leave insert film. Yeah. Like that dancing at Lunasa, Angela's Ashes, like all the other, frankly, crap the films. The barley, like, like all the misery. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, it's and they completely they strip out all of the nuance and they make it about uh, four people who want to have sex in fifties Ireland. Yeah. 
And they all do. And it's like, they spend more time talking about procuring condoms than they do about talking to each other. And like... It's such a strange... Like, I would hate to have only seen the film and not read the book. I would be bereft if I sat down and thought that that was what Binchy was. Yeah. Do you know? Like, it's like they took odd weird lines of dialogue ran them through Google Translate into French ran them back and then stuck them in front of Mini yeah. Driver and she had to cope with them I like, know and coping admirably cope. she did her very best <laughs> to be fair to her she yeah. really held it together <laughs> no like, beef with Mini no beef good woman yourself I, I was not only disappointed but bereaved mm. because I felt like I had just spent this week in this book and I was like like genuinely not exaggerating any capacity changed like, mm. I do feel like this is a point that I've hit where I've, I, I've been terribly, we've talked about this a bit before, like, you read so much for your job and you end up reading because you're a writer and you read a yeah. study and everything. And, and you also, you end up reading uh, everything that's on the front table in Waterstones. Because you have to. Like, yeah, because like, you want to keep up with the conversation. You want to read, you know, your Rachel Cust, your Sally Rooney's, all of them brilliant women, but like, they're all, they're all like so squarely in the zeitgeist and you're supposed to have this pressure to have an opinion about them and, and you might have no opinion, but you're still expected to have one. And then you read a 30-year-old book. And your life is different. And your life is different. That nobody ever thought to put in front of you. Yeah. Because they're all busy trying to tell you what you should and shouldn't think. Yeah. Like, this felt like an act of rebellion. Weirdly, who knew that <laughs> sitting down and picking up a 30-year-old paperback was going to be like... for it? And again, I really... I'm never going to stop writing about weird fucking spaceships and monsters and things. But this is yeah. ch- this has formally changed how I want to approach my so work. So how, how, how do you think in your next work, maybe she's going to show up? Because for me, I oh. think I'm going to let them all have a bit more fun. I was exactly, you <laughs> took it out of my mouth. You took, I was like, everyone's just going to have a bit of a fucking better time. We're all just going to have them hanging around a little bit more and saying slightly mean shit to each other a bit more. I'm not going to be so afraid of having characters who are actually justifiably fucking insecure about their bodies in public spaces. Yeah. Do you know? I feel like I call a lot of I've, I've female characters. I'm like, well, she'd better be a fucking feminist from the minute she came out of the womb or she's useless in 2019. No, yeah. like... People have insecurities. People suffer pain. And I think Benny's authenticity and her totality as a character was, like, it's given me a relief. Yeah. Like, she absolutely hates herself half it, but you don't feel like there's any angst. But everyone loves her. Oh, yeah. Everyone, but she can't see that. You can draw a straight it. line between Maeve Binchy's work and the, oh, my God, what a complete Ashley Oh, books. my God. It's a natural successor. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. They are brethren. I'm so fucking glad I would step over somebody for an arc of, oh, my, once, twice, three times an Ashling, in case anybody's listening. Um, <laughs> I, I genuinely think the last time I felt that... I cannot move my head from this book because I am in a different world. Don't yeah. touch me. Was reading both of those books back to back on holidays last year. I was powerful work, like very powerful work, and I do think they are natural successors. And yeah. like, what a fucking amazing time! Like, what a relief. And I just every time I see those Ashling books in Easons or in Waterstones or whatever, I'm just thinking of the amount of 16 year old girls in secondary yeah. school who didn't think they were into books who will read Ashling because because they make jokes about like pennies and Ryanair and like bringing your lunch on a Ryanair flight and they'll read those books and then maybe like it's like what you always say books are sh- sold on the shelf together yeah. and then they'll jump down the well and then they'll hit Maeve Binchy at the end of it you and know? then they'll be like oh my god don't knock knock Glenn yes, yes you know exactly like there is such a welcoming energy I think it's the obvious it's the real really stark alternative to austerity and snobbery that there is yeah. there is something so truthful and brilliant in this like it's and I, I do feel the same way with the Ashley books yeah. as, as well and I want, don't want to harp on about this too much but it's like there's so much and I, I, I respect all of my fellow peers who are writing blah 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 but there is so much in novels at the moment of just depressing chicks mm. just depressing chicks and it's like that kind of um, language that you get in like New York type novels where it's like 
I had an Ambien and took a shit. <laughs> like, I had no, sex with my professor. Mm, like, and I'm just I just took a load of Xanax and had a cry. And <laughs> yeah. then I went for brunch. Like, yeah, yeah I know. Me too, man. I, not for like, depressing chicks. Like, just them, like... Let them have a minute to enjoy themselves. Let the pain be the pain and let the pleasure be the pleasure. And I think that that balance, like, not lying in Dublin, the two worlds. Like, yeah. there are two emotional worlds in this book. There's worlds of grief and death and pain. There are three deaths. There's the death of a young person, the death of an old man. Death and of a baby. Yeah. You know? Like, there is so much death in this book and somehow as humans as all of us are who grapple with death and life we just fucking get on with it yeah and so much of this is in the spirit of just getting on with it and it's so counter the kind of Irish literature that was being pushed on us at the time and what was popular at the time which is that like oh Jesus the baby died and my mother never recovered <laughs> like no you know? everyone there's a practicality <laughs> And a, and a humanity to it. There's no self-pity in this work. And for a minute, characters might be like, I'm only a big fat fucking lump and And then she's like, I'm going out now anyway. Yeah. Like, there is <laughs> time for pain and reflection and the agony of existing in a female body in public. That's yeah. addressed and honoured. But they're also permitted joy. And the permission of joy in this work, I think that's actually a pretty good reflection of it as a work and as its relationship to literature and, and, and snobbery. Let yourself feel fucking joy. Read Circle of Friends. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, let yourself move on. Yes. Like, yeah, so. That's a lovely place to end it, I think. We've been talking about this 30-year-old book for a straight hour. Yeah, you should read it. Like, read it's it. really good. Um, before we go... Uh, You've got a beautiful book. That's one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. Oh, Other you. Words for Smoke. Yeah, um, super crazy, gothic, magical, queer as a hell uh, book. Tell us a little bit about it before we go. Uh, Other Words for Smoke is a book about kissing. No, it's not. It's a book, <laughs> it's a book about a haunted house in the outside Dublin suburbs on the cusp of the mountains where two bad things live in the walls and they're both fucking hungry. So three generations of Irish women, all of whom... Uh, love each other and hate each other and the ways in which these monsters feed on that love and fear mm. um, and it's got a real nice pink set of pages if like this is white on the side smoke is pink on the side um, I hate to sell a book by a cover but it's gorgeous looking it's a gorgeous um, cover took yeah. me three years to write and it was terrifying to do so yeah. so um, <laughs> the whole book is the truth and that's all I got yeah. for you <laughs> well Fab Samuel Griffin you're thank a great you. friend and a fantastic guest oh, and thank you so much for being here today thank, thank you all for coming for saying, it's garbage Woo! happy body soul <laughs> This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Sentimental Garbage.